I wonder if some of you have heard of the documentary called Made You Look. The documentary that tells a story about a true story of how more than 60 different abstract expressionist paintings previously unknown to the world suddenly came onto the market. If you're familiar with paintings and painters, we're talking about artists like Andy Warhol, Mark Rothko, Jackson Pollock. Over 10 years, these paintings were sold to some of the highest bidders and wealthiest collectors on the planet. It was an artwork bonanza that seemed almost too good to be true. And actually, it was too good to be true. Practically, the entire art world was taken in by a counterfeit artwork, artwork scam. Those 60-plus paintings sold to collectors and galleries across the world. It ended up being the costliest art scam in history. Over $80 million uh, worth of forged works sold. Now, in this film, Made You Look, it uh, really focuses the blame a lot on one person, a woman named Ann Friedman. Ann Friedman was a renowned art collector and dealer in New York City, very reputable among artists and art collectors. And she bought the first of a series of fake paintings. Now, it was strange because she did buy paintings that lacked the usual paperwork, the story that tells um, of where the painting came from, came from, the provenance, I think it's, it's called. There was a lot of other evidence that was missing when it comes to normally authenticating a true piece of artwork. And many people interviewed in the film kept saying that Friedman, she should have known better. She should have researched it more, and she should have examined these paintings more. And it's hard to argue with that. What Friedman wasn't seduced by wasn't just profit, you see, it was the thrill of discovering these new paintings and bringing them into the world. But even if she had examined them very closely, more thoroughly, how could it be that all of these other experts in the art world were also duped, that they didn't examine close enough? So in a sly way, this documentary made you look. It shows you proper examination matters. Improper examination can lead to self-deception. It can lead to misleading other people. Improper examination can lead to damaging people's lives and livelihoods and relationships and cost people dearly. Friends, in a much greater way, in the house of God, examination matters. The Bible makes it clear that when you come into the house of God, how you conduct yourself matters, particularly when it comes to our worship, and in our worship, the means of grace, the Lord's Supper in particular. How we approach God, the Bible says, is of eternal consequence, much more so, much more important than even $80 million worth of artwork. The sad fact is, someone could deceive themselves that they are right with God when in fact they're living their life in a manner that displeases Him. Improper examination spiritually can lead to self-deception and even lead to harming relationships within the church and others. Friends, the Bible teaches 
And in our passage today, Paul teaches us that there is a proper way and an improper way to approach God, and particularly the Lord's Supper. We must examine and test ourselves rightly if we are to worship God purely and observe the Lord's Supper correctly. That's what we're going to learn about today and see in our passage, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 and 28. If you haven't already, I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. It's also printed for you in your order of service, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 and 28, as we are wrapping up this four-part series on the Lord's Supper, preparing ourselves to take this sacrament seriously as a church, as Christians, but also joyfully and respectfully. In a Christ-centered, Christ-exalting way, we want to observe the supper properly. And today, today we're looking at what does it mean to prepare to take the Lord's Supper? And Paul teaches us, points to this in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 and 28. Read along with me here and follow along. What you're about to hear now is the very word of God. Paul writes, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Thus far the reading of God's word. Praise God for his holy word. Well, friends, last week, if you remember, we looked at, we explored this question of who should come to the table. Should I come to the table? That is, who is welcome at the Lord's Supper? And we looked at and we answered that question by saying, well, it's a baptized, professing believer who is in a member in good standing at a local church. We unpack that. It's an invitation to those believers not who are perfect in faith, but who have faith, even weak faith. Table is a means of grace. It's a sacrament that Christ instituted for his church for those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, not those who are already filled and don't need it. That is who can participate and come to the table. And it is the elders of the church, as we saw, who are in charge of protecting the table. But there is another question, I think really logically, that falls upon that of, can I, can I come to the table? It really is, how should I come to the table? How can I prepare? Not just should I come, but how should I come to the table? The Bible teaches us that there is a proper way and an improper way to approach the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is to be taken joyously, seriously, after self-examination in a Christ-centered preparation. This has been true throughout the history of the church, really. The reformers, um, people like John Calvin, Martin Luther, Zwingli, took the Lord's Supper very seriously. So among all the controversies going on during the Reformation, all the debates, arguments with the Roman Catholic Church, trying to reform, go back to what the Bible teaches, there were many doctrines that were discussed and hammered out. Of course, primarily the doctrine of justification by faith alone, that's the probably the most important thing that was established in the Reformation. But what many people don't know is that much more ink was spilt or much more was written about the Lord's Supper than any other doctrine during the Reformation. The Reformers took this seriously, and we should take it seriously too, following in that stream. 
The Puritans also, following upon the Reformers, took it very seriously of the Lord's Supper in general, why it's such a blessed sacrament, how it is a means of grace and a help to us in the Christian life, but even preparing for it. John Owen, one of the premier Puritans, he wrote, can you believe this, 25 sermons just on preparation, just on examination of taking the Lord's Supper. You're only getting one. Um, John Owen, 25. My friends, the Puritans said partaking of the supper was or is an earthly participation of a heavenly reality. I like that because it really brings some gravitas, some seriousness, some joyfulness of what is going on. And so we need that reminder that the Lord's Supper is a serious thing. And it is a way that we need to honor God properly. And part of that is preparing properly and examining ourselves as we tread upon holy ground approaching the table. I want to do that looking at this passage this afternoon, dividing it up in two main points. First main point is to be very quick. You've got it in front of you. Hear the warning approaching in an unworthy manner in verse 27. The second main point will be, will be longer, so just prepare yourselves for that. But friends, we do need to hear first Paul's warning here in verse 27. It is possible to come to the table in an unworthy manner. So Paul says in verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. It matters, Paul's saying, how you approach the table. Not something that can be taken lightly. Eating and drinking at the table improperly can invite God's judgment. You can be guilty, Paul says. So what does it mean to partake in an unworthy manner? There's different ways we could do that. I just want to give you two ways it's possible to partake in an unworthy manner. One way it's possible is to be completely ignorant of the significance of the supper. To not know what the supper is given for. What is the meaning behind it? It's possible to come in an unworthy manner without giving any idea, without giving any thought to the meaning and purpose of the meal. Because this is a precious feast that points to something. It points to Christ's sacrificed body as poured out blood. And to have no concept of that is really a sign of irreverence. You think of during the Passover when the Jews uh, were observing this sacred meal, the children were sort of charged with or were expected to, during the Passover, to ask their parents, say, why are we doing this? What's the purpose of this meal? And the parents had an obligation to explain the significance, to not leave their children ignorant of what God had promised in the meal. Well, friends, as we've seen before, we carry over much of what the Passover signified. And in a greater way, we too are not to be ignorant whenever we celebrate this meal. We ought to understand what is going on. And so just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, Verse 15, if we're to pray with understanding, if we're to sing with understanding, how much more so ought we to eat and drink with understanding in the supper? Because to be ignorant of what something, ignorant of something precious is to devalue it. Let's think of, for example, if you were to place the Mona Lisa in front of a one or two year old, you know, they could have no concept of what the Mona Lisa is, how it's a priceless piece of art, right? They might just pick up their own marker and start drawing on it. 
just have no idea of the significance of what lays in front of them. Well, friends, the same much greater way, of course, when we approach the table. We want to know how significant it is so that we don't devalue what's going on. And so, of course, that's why we've been going through this short series on the supper so that we can partake in a worthy manner. So I just want to encourage you then, when we do begin to take the supper, one way you can prepare well is to perhaps just read through, remind yourself, refresh yourself of what Jesus has done in the supper. You can pick up any account in the gospel when Jesus speaks those words of institution. It's a good practice for you, I think, during the week for all of us is to just read through that in the gospel to meditate once again on what Christ has done. And it's also why when we do take the supper, Lord willing, uh, we'll read through, I'll read through a form that explains what is the significance of the supper. Again, because we want to approach in a worthy manner to understand the significance of the supper. But there's another way we can eat or drink in an unworthy manner. And that is that we can do so with contempt for Christ himself. To eat or drink in an unworthy manner is to eat or drink with contempt for Christ. I think that's what Paul has in mind here when he wrote to the Corinthians. Because remember the context here. And we don't read it here in chapter 11, but in chapter 5, as we've seen before, uh, there's a man in this church who is in open sin, unrepentant sin. He is having sexual relations with his father's wife, basically his mother, his uh, stepmother. And he's not sorry about it at all. And the church knows about it. And they're not doing anything about it. There's no repentance over the sin. And he's, in fact, flaunting the sin in a sense when he comes to the supper and expects to take the supper. It's a gross sin. It's a mockery of Christ, of what was going on there in that man's open and public sin. You know, someone once pointed out Um, that when Paul says here, don't come in an unworthy manner, he's not saying an unworthy individual. Paul's burden is not to confirm whether you deserve to come to the table. If that's the case, then none of us would be able to come. He's concerned about whether you're approaching the table with absolute no regard for Christ, as that man was doing, and no concern over your own sin. To eat or drink in an unworthy manner is to come with no brokenness, to come with absolute numbness over sin and no thankfulness for what Christ has accomplished without any regard for the need of grace. That's what Paul's warning us about here. In a much greater way, we can miss what's going on in the table when we think that we, are, that we can do without the grace of Christ that our sin doesn't matter. And to do so, Paul says, is to invite judgment on ourselves, to be guilty before God, to eat and drink judgment on ourselves. So examination, proper examination is necessary if we're to approach God's house of worship and take partake in the means of grace. So if that's partaking in an unworthy way, just being ignorant of the sacrament or just having contempt for Christ. What does it mean to come in a worthy manner? Well, it involves true examination. That's what Paul says in verse 28. Here's the command Paul gives in verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
Now that word examine here is used um, in other contexts, for example, like a metal worker who is purifying the metal and the elements to inspect it. Think of a gold worker. Someone who's working with gold is refining it of impurities. They're going to inspect it and test it to see if the gold is as pure as it needs to be. Well, to examine, Paul says, is kind of like this, to, to look at our lives, to test our lives for impurities, to see if we're sort of measuring up, as it were, to what God requires when we come to him in the table. That's important to remember because Paul says here as well, it's, it's not enough for others to examine whether you're fit to come to the table. And Paul says you're to examine yourself. Examine yourself for these impurities of sin, unrepentant sin in your life. So if you're to come to the table, you must ask yourself, how can I approach the table in a worthy manner? How can I examine myself truly? And I want to give you three criteria for what that looks like. Paul says to examine yourself. Think of three things. Number one, you need to have true repentance. True repentance. Examination is a careful consideration of your life for sin and ungodliness. Unlike that man in Corinth who gave no thought to his public sin of sexual relations with his father's wife. Let's be clear. Because there's a lot of confusion among Christians. Let's be clear about what true repentance is. I'm afraid that in many evangelical churches, repentance is hardly talked about. And when it is, it's, it's sorely misunderstood. Friends, repentance is not just despair. It's not just fear. It's not fear over judgment and hell. That's not true repentance. Judas showed sadness and fear. He showed sadness and fear over the consequences of his actions when he betrayed Jesus. But it was despair and not repentance that caused Judas to kill himself, and now he's in hell. And repentance is not just being afraid of consequences. Repentance is also not just some spiritually motivated high. It's not some emotional sense after hearing some good words from a preacher and feeling motivated after that. It's not even good intentions in the heart after hearing God's word. Think of Herod. Herod after hearing John's preaching. Herod felt moved, the Bible says. But Herod was not repentant over his sin at all. As good as he felt and as moved as he was, there was no repentance in his heart not just emotional high. It's also not just making a resolution. Repentance is not just another New Year's vow, saying, I'm going to change this in my life. It's not just words or a promise. Repentance is not even leaving some sin in your life only to indulge in another sin. Again, that was one of Herod's faults. Herod heard this preaching from John, And then he might have reformed some things in his life, but he kept his adulterous relationship with Herodias. That's not true repentance. That's just pausing one sin while you enjoy another. Friends, true repentance involves two things. If I'm going to boil it down, it involves many things, but I'm going to boil it down to two things for true repentance. Number one, it's humiliation. I say humiliation, I don't mean that's hating yourself. I mean, that's being humbled by and hating your sin. That's what repentance is made up of. 
It means your heart is broken over sin. It's like a boulder that is smashed by a hammer. The boulder is your heart. The hammer is God's law. When you hear God speak, it crushes your heart, your hard heart of sin. And when it does, you're not only crushed, you're also melted, knowing that you can't stand before God. Your heart leads to sorrow, to shame, to contrition, petitioning God. You go from a hardness in heart to a softness in heart, kind of like a a big ice cube that melts in hot water. So to be ashamed of your sin, to be humiliated by it, you recognize that what you have done was an active part of rebellion against God, and because of that, you've ruptured your relationship with God. You're humiliated because sin has dirtied you. You're humiliated because sin has robbed you of your enjoyment of God. You're humiliated because it has hid God's smile behind a cloud of sin. Think of David when he's confronted by Nathan, saying, you are the man. Think of Peter, who sorrowed when he heard the cock crow three times. Think of the crowd at Pentecost in Acts 2. When they heard Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart, saying, what must we do to be saved? This is what repentance looks like, number one, humiliation, being humbled over sin. And you know you're humbled over sin when you're ready and eager to leave it. And that involves the second half of repentance, which is transformation. So you need to be humiliated in a godly way, not hating yourself, hating your sin. But that's also leading you to forsake it. And so you're transformed. And that involves a turning away from sin. Part of repentance is a resolve to leave sin behind. It's forsaking it. It's walking in a new direction. As many of us know, the definition, part of repentance, that definition is a turning away, a turning around and walking in the opposite direction. That's what the Holy Spirit does in your life. If you're a true Christian, if you're a true Christian, not only saddened by sin, but the Holy Spirit is working to reorder the loves of your heart. The Holy Spirit is working in your mind to change the decisions in your life so that they're God-honoring. Transformation involves your mind, your will, your passions, all being changed to conform to God's law. As the psalmist says, you delight to do his will. That's what repentance looks like, submitting to God. So repentance is not just a feeling. It's not an emotion. Repentance is a decision. It's a decision to leave behind sin. It's deciding to confess that you failed to live life on your own. It's a decision to say, God, I was trying to be the God in my own life. I was trying to replace you. And I decide to forsake that and follow Christ instead. It's a decision to submit to Christ, to love what he loves and hate what he hates. That's what true repentance looks like. And that is what we're to exercise and test ourselves for, examine ourselves for, if we're to approach Christ in the supper. That's the first thing that we need to know if we're going to take the supper in a worthy manner. We need true repentance. But then that leads us to the second thing, quite naturally. True examination involves true faith. That is, remembering that the focus of the supper is ultimately pointing to Christ and not ourselves. Richard Baxter once said that nowhere is God so near to man as in Jesus Christ. And nowhere 
is Christ so familiarly represented to us than in the Supper? As you encounter Christ in the Supper, through faith, and only through faith. Now this focus on Christ, central to the Supper, through faith, is certainly what Paul had in mind when he wrote to these Corinthians. Because they had made the Supper about something else. They made it something about other than Christ. They made it about themselves. Now we didn't read it here, we read it last week, but earlier in this passage, Paul says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What the Corinthians had done, and they made the supper about indulging themselves. The rich were getting fat, um, the poor were going without. The supper was just a way to have another great meal. Christ was no longer even present in the supper. They were far from Christ because they turned the supper into a drunken party. The object of it was themselves. But when we come to the table... You must remember, Christ is the focus, ultimately, not ourselves. You can only approach the table in a worthy manner when you do so by faith in him. True examination involves testing your life for true faith in Jesus Christ and believing in his promises. To believe that the wrath of God against sin, against your sin, has been turned away because of Christ's once for all, his once for all sacrifice on the cross. The true examination is looking inside of your heart to see whether you believe those promises, that all of your sins are forgiven in Christ, to test and see if you really believe that. Now, when we talk about this, I believe, approaching Christ in true faith in the supper, True examination of your heart to test the object of your faith in Jesus Christ. I think it will help to remember that our attitude should be like those of the Israelites when they were in the wilderness, as we read earlier in Numbers chapter 21. Moses and the Israelites journeying through the wilderness, the Israelites sin against God by grumbling against him, by despairing, by even um, almost cursing God for what he had given to them. And so the Lord afflicts his people with snakes. He sends fiery serpents against the Israelites in their bid, and many of them died. And then the people come to Moses and confess their sin. So Moses, as we read earlier, as he's commanded by God, he made a bronze serpent, attaches it, attaches it to a long pole, and the Lord commands the Israelites just to look in faith on that bronze serpent so that they would be saved from their snake bites and, and, and be healed. Just as the Israelites looked in faith at that bronze serpent on the pole in order to be saved, so too believers look to Christ and the salvation that he alone provides because Jesus was raised on a pole, as it were, the cross. And when we look upon him in faith, we too are healed. When we come to the supper, we need true faith in Christ. Without faith, you have no part in Christ. I think for many of us, that might sound familiar. The problem is, though, when we come to the table, we still feel like there are obstacles to seeing Christ and feasting on Christ. 
when some Christians hear, I need to examine myself for true repentance and true faith, they think, I just don't know if I have enough. I don't know if my faith is real. I don't know if my, my faith feels too fragile. I've sinned too much this week. Am I still welcome to come? Friends, we put up actually self-imposed obstacles in this way when we think of approaching the table through faith in Christ. So this afternoon, let's remove some of those self-imposed obstacles so we can come quickly to the table. There's three obstacles I think we put up a lot of the time when it comes to the table through faith. Number one, you need to remove the obstacle of a worldly definition of faith. Because a lot of us are operating on a worldly definition of what faith is. Some people approach the table, the supper, as a leap of faith. That they have to suspend all rational judgment and common sense in order to make sense of what's going on in the Lord's Supper. This is some mystical thing that I can't possibly ever comprehend. I just need to leap, take a giant leap of faith against all reason. There's a movie, I'm sure many of you heard of it, watched it, Miracle on 34th Street. Very popular Christmas movie. And in that movie, Santa Claus says what much of the world thinks faith is. He says, faith is believing in things when common sense tells you not to. Is that what faith is? Take a more contemporary movie franchise. Fast and Furious. Not condoning it if you watch it, watch the edited versions. If you know the Fast and Furious franchise, you know it's all about racing these incredible cars, doing incredible stunts that are impossible to do. Um, Launching cars out of airplanes and landing them on perilous mountain roads. Even launching them into outer space and back. Racing down flaming dams as they're about to explode. And then coming out of it with hardly a scratch. Impossible. Well, in that movie, or one of those movies, one of the main characters, he explains how this works. How is it possible? Nothing's impossible, he says. You just need to have faith. You just need to sort of suspend your world of what's, irras- of what's rational and just go at it. Take a leap of faith. In other words, in the world's mind, faith Faith is irrational. It's contrary to experience. It's contrary to logic. It's contrary to knowledge. Even at the most common sense level. Friends, the Bible does not define faith that way. Faith, according to the Bible, the Christian faith, it isn't to believe the ridiculous when common sense tells you otherwise. The Christian faith is rational. The Christian faith is logical. It is based on evidence. It is based on testimony. True faith is a knowledge and a conviction that everything that God reveals in his word is true. It's based on objective facts, like Jesus really did live, he really did die, and he really did rise again, And there were witnesses to testify to the fact. So friends, when you come to the supper, this is so important to remember, you're not taking a leap of faith. This is not something irrational. You are making a proclamation of a historical event that actually happened. And Jesus has given you the supper in part 
to remind you that it truly happened. As surely as you see the bread broken, Christ gave his body on the cross. As surely as you see the blood poured or the wine poured out, his blood was poured out for you. It actually happened because faith is based on real historical events. It's rational. It's true. It's not, it's not uh, com- contrary to common sense. We need to remove that obstacle of a worldly definition of faith if we're to approach in a worthy manner. But also, number two, true faith, need to remember, approaching the table, need to remove this obstacle again, that you can only come to the table with strong faith. Remove that obstacle. Friends, true faith is necessary. But true faith is not necessarily strong faith. J.C. Ryle once put it this way, faith, remember, is the root. Assurance, full assurance, is the flower. It's possible to have the root without the flower. It's not possible to have the flower without the root. You need to have faith. That doesn't mean the flower is necessarily in full bloom when it comes to your faith. Friends, here's faith. Here's faith that's worthy to come to the table. Faith, like that poor trembling woman who pushed through the crowd to touch Jesus' garment. Faith, like the penitent thief on the cross as he was dying, he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Faith, like Peter, when he's drowning on the water in the sea, and he's crying out as he begins to sink, Lord, save me. Or faith like the Father who said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Friends, we need faith to come to the table. Sometimes faith is strong. Sometimes it's weak. But it has to be true faith. This type of faith, while it's weak, is still true faith. Lord's Supper is for the weak in faith. It's for the trembling. It's for the penitent. It is for those who are in the dust who still trust. It is for the drowning. It is for the anxious. It is not, said one Puritan, the strength of your faith that saves, but the truth of your faith that saves. It's not the weakness of your faith that condemns you. It's the want or lack of faith that condemns. So friends, when you think of coming to the table, true faith Remove the obstacle, often self-imposed, that you need to have strong faith. You just need true faith. Now, one more obstacle that we often put in front of ourselves when it comes to approaching in true faith. True faith is not about working up pious emotional feelings when you come to the table. That's another self-imposed obstacle to think that I need to have this sort of emotional experience before I can take the supper. Now, friends, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you can't have emotions in the supper. Of course you can. I know a godly pastor, for example, when he takes the supper, prepares, he otherwise hardly ever cries in life, but he gets very emotional when he takes the Lord's Supper. I'm not saying all emotions wrong. What I am saying, though, is that requiring a sort of pious emotion in order to take the supper, sort of requiring tears and crying in order to take the supper. That is not required in order to take the supper. 
That's a mistaken mindset, actually. It's a mistaken mindset because it's really focusing on what you do as a person rather than what Jesus Christ has done for you. See, the supper is all about what Christ has done. All you can do is really receive and take and rest in what he has done. That's the kind of mindset that we need to have. The kind of mindset that says we need to work up pious feelings about Jesus Christ is confusing. It's confusing faith with feelings. Faith is not feelings. You don't lead with feelings. Rather, when you have faith in Jesus Christ, your feelings will follow. So how emotional you work yourself up to be is not the measure of the depth of your faith. The supper is a feast reminding us that all the riches of salvation are found in Christ because he has accomplished everything on your behalf. So friends, when you approach the supper, don't be tempted, don't give in to temptation to think you have to have a certain kind of emotional high or experience in order to take the supper. A true true examination does involve, though, testing your heart for true repentance and true faith. We need to see that. But then third and finally, when it comes to true examination, let's remember one more thing, and that is true thankfulness. True thankfulness. If we're to approach a table, we need to have true repentance, true faith, true thankfulness as we examine ourselves. That makes sense, because if someone really has been broken over their sin and melted in shame, confess that to God, being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, looking to Christ in faith, remembering that he has accomplished it all, how could you not but respond with gratitude, right? Because I didn't do anything to deserve this. I didn't do anything to to earn my salvation. It's all possible through Jesus Christ. Therefore, he's due all the gratitude that I can offer him in my life. Everything that I want to do from now on is living for him, reflecting his glory, giving honor to him. Really, what we're asking ourselves here in this third part of examination is, is the gospel bearing fruit in my life? You know, you could, in a sense, in a sense, you could have repentance and faith and have that be, in a sense, just between you and God. Other people can't really see that in a way. But when it comes to thankfulness, when it comes to showing the fruit of the gospel, this is something that we can observe. This is something that we should be able to see in our lives around us and in the church. And that's what I think Paul's getting at here in 1 Corinthians 11 once again. When he writes to this church there, he's saying, you guys are not acting like you're thankful to God. Because when you take the supper, you're being selfish. It's all about how much you can eat. It's all about division, the rich and the poor. And by the way, in other things in your church, you're dividing yourselves about which leader you're going to follow. Oh, and also you're bringing lawsuits against each other? How is that demonstrating the fruit of the Holy Spirit and the unity that you have in Jesus Christ, Paul's saying? This is not the supper that you're taking, Paul says, because you're not expressing true thankfulness in God in the way that you're showing fruit in your life. If you want to take the supper worthy, in a worthy manner, examine your life for fruit of the gospel. Are you thankful for what God has done? And is, is it showing in your relationships in the church? Friends, I hope you can see with that mindset, taking the supper is not just an individualistic 
experience. Taking the supper is not just something between you and God. It is something between you and God, but it's not just something between you and God. There is a vertical aspect of it, but there is certainly a horizontal aspect as well. As Christians, we're called to inspect our hearts, to test our faith, to see if we're truly living in good relationships with other Christians in the church. And Jesus says something to this effect, if you remember in Matthew 5. He says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Examination, in other words, is not just something that I can do walled off completely from all other believers. It's kind of reminding us that you can't really take the Lord's Supper on your own either, in your own home, just isolated away. The Lord's Supper, by definition, has to be in fellowship with other Christians because it involves examining my relationship with other Christians that I'm in covenant with requires me to even repair damaged relationships when necessary. That can only happen. can only happen when you have a heart that has been transformed by the gospel. A heart that's looking to faith in Jesus Christ. A heart that desires to live by grace and not by works. A heart that says, God, you've shown me so much grace in my life. How could I but not show or try to show grace to others? And the Lord's Supper is a way to help us remember that, the graciousness Christ has shown us, but then to compel us, to motivate us, to encourage us to turn right around and show that grace to other people, to be thankful, to bear fruit of repentance in our lives as Christians. Friends, Christ has given us a wonderful means of grace. And we want to partake of it in a worthy manner because he is worthy of all honor. So there is a proper way and an improper way to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we must celebrate the Lord's Supper joyously and seriously after self-examination and Christ-centered preparation. Supper is a great blessing to believers. One commentator put this so well. I want to read this for you. hope this is a comfort for you as it is for me. He said, in the supper, if one is afflicted by sin, the supper is a comfort. If an individual is comfortable with sin, the supper is an affliction. Paul is calling the Christians to examine themselves, not to find reasons they are unworthy, but to find evidence of a repentant heart evidence that grace is at work. If a believer has a repentant heart, he or she should be coming to the table. Paul wants to wants believers to examine themselves not for perfection, but for recognition of their need of Christ's perfection on their behalf. Friends, as you prepare, I hope you can see, as you prepare, don't wait then for self-examination. Begin today. Begin to examine your heart today so that you can partake of Christ. Certainly in the supper, but even now in a living relationship with him. Today, you can have fellowship with Christ through faith. 
Examine your heart then for true repentance, true faith, true thankfulness. Not just before you take the supper, certainly when you do, but do it especially today when you hear God's word speaking. Friends, as we prepare to take the supper, be ready, be ready to do so in a worthy manner. True repentance, true faith, and true thankfulness. Amen. Let's pray.